Where did you see God this week? When I first joined the Episcopal Church, I also joined an EFM group. It's an education for ministry group, a kind of Bible study on steroids. Um, Every week, we started off our class answering one question. Where did you see God this week? A simple question, but it's a really interesting consideration for me at the time. I was fresh from evangelicalism, where everyone talked about their personal relationship with Jesus, like, like he was a buddy, um, though one given to intense scrutiny, uh, or like a jealous lover or boyfriend or someone to talk at in the car or sing to in praise. I would later learn that this understanding of God was called eminence, the sense that God was right here all the time. Being asked where I saw God every week assumed something else, that God could be missed. This made a great deal of sense to me when I looked at the disarray of the world and my own faith. Where did you see God this week? The answers to this question varied from week to week. You know, at church, serving food to the poor, a birth, a death. A lot of our retired folks uh, seemed to find God while watching their bird feeders or the sunrise. There were at least two miraculous encounters told by these embarrassed Episcopalians who knew they were breaching decorum by suggesting direct divine intervention, but they admitted it. But the overriding theme of this, these answers was that this presence of God was not often recognized in the moment it was happening. It was only looking back at our weeks with a sense of curiosity that we'd remember a certain feeling or recognize an important moment or conversation that we'd have this little light go off and we'd realize, I think that was God. In our Old Testament lesson, Moses wants to see God. If you've missed the story the past few weeks, it's not been a great time for him and the Israelites. Uh, They're wandering in the the wilderness, first of all. Um, And then Moses turned his back for like five minutes, and when he returned, the Israelites had made a giant cow made of gold to worship, uh, rubbing salt in the wound. Aaron, his own brother, had overseen the whole fiasco and then tried to say it was an accident. Like, he literally says, they all just took off their gold pieces and we put them together and there was a cow. I have no idea what happened. (laughs) Moses responds by grinding the idol down to dust and making the people drink it, which I think is actually kind of an amusing story to pair with the way that rich people put gold flecks in their champagne now to drink just because they can. You know about this? The moral of this gold drinking is that 3,000 people are slaughtered for the transgression, and the whole episode wraps up with a plague sent by God. So yeah, not a great time for Moses. So poor, disenchanted Moses retreats to the tent of meeting that he pitches away outside the camp to go talk with God. 
the message translation of the Bible captures the emotion really well in his speech. Moses says, look, God, you tell me, lead this people, but you don't let me know who you're going to send with me. You tell me, I know you well, and you are special to me, but if I'm so special to you, let me in on your plans. That way I know I'm special to you. Don't forget, this is your people, your responsibility. Moses has got some chutzpah, and God apparently likes that in prayers. He responds favorably. I would like to let you see me, but I can't. It would kill you. No one sees me and lives. But God makes an arrangement with Moses. Moses will hide behind some rocks, and God's hand will cover him. I think of my mom covering my eyes when scary parts in movies came up. This very tender but blinding effect. Through the cleft of the rock, Moses will be able to look out and see when God passes by. Moses can't see God face to face, but he'll be able to see a glimpse of God's back, the place where God has just left. Christians have called this understanding transcendence, that God is a being impossibly greater than our being and comprehension. More than that, that God goes through this self-emptying, a vacating, because if God didn't, our flimsy matchstick world couldn't exist. Like something like how children must be given their own space and agency from yours because dictated love isn't love. So paradoxically, the presence of God is testified to by an absence, a longing for what has vacated, not the great and shattering voice itself, but the echo of it reflected off of the surfaces of other people in your own life. The great Anglican priest and poet R.S. Thomas wrote, It is this great absence that is like a presence that compels me to address it without hope of a reply. It is a room I enter from which someone has just gone, the vestibule for the arrival of one who has not yet come. Maybe you come to church to learn about God's presence rather than God's absence. Maybe the rest of your life has more than enough of God's absence. If that's true, I'll tell you that Thomas's image of a vestibule being prepared for one who has not yet come might be one to take with you. Or maybe you'll discover what my EFM group did as we answered the same question every week, that as you look back on your life, there were these unmistakable fingerprints of fading glory where someone had just been, though you didn't know it at the time, covered as you were by the tender hand of that being just beyond your vision. <laughs> 